Hi, welcome to Top Interviews. I'm Margo Escott, a clinical social worker and improviser, and I have a wonderful guest today suggested by our mutual good friend, Jay Suko. If I don't mention his name 50 times, he won't listen. So here he is, Gary Ware. Good afternoon, Gary. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm so excited to dive in. I am too, because we have a common denominator, not just improv, but the power of play. So uh, I'm eager to talk to you maybe about some of the chapters in your book that's coming out this September. And uh, I would like to really, I want to go backstory a little bit, a little bit about your childhood, some of the things you had to cope with as a kid. Um, I grew up in the <clears throat> 50s and the work ethic was very, very strong. Although in the 50s, as a little girl, I was expected to find a prince and live happily ever after. So uh, I don't know <laughs> but what the stories were you were hearing, but I don't think it was to be a princess and grow up and marry somebody happily ever after. So let's talk about where you grew up and what your family life was like. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in the 80s. I was born at the beginning of the decade, uh, 1980 to be specific. And my dad was in the Navy. So we ended up, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. We ended up in San Diego. Uh, I am the oldest of three, uh, two younger sisters. And um, yeah, both of my parents, very hardworking. Um, and yeah, that was the thing, you know, school's important good at good education you will you will go to college um and like i talk about my in my book uh it was a bit challenging for me because i had adhd and dyslexic uh and i was dyslexic two of the things that i was not properly diagnosed until well into my 20s um and so it was just more annoying than anything where um you know, school wasn't my favorite thing to do, but I made it through. Um, I don't know how. I, I guess um, if you were to ask some of my teachers, they would say because uh, I was very charismatic. Uh, I, I think that was one of the reasons. I, I can t talk my way out of anything, and maybe that is what led me to improv. Um, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was a bit challenging. Also, another thing, because my dad was in the Navy, up into fourth grade, I was in a different school every year. So one oh of my, gosh. yeah, learned behaviors was how to make friends, how to survive. Um, so yeah, that that's a little bit of the backstory. Like, you know, growing up, um, you know, my, my parents didn't have much, but growing up, like we didn't, they did a, you know, they worked so much. Um, they didn't make it seem like we were without, um, you know, we always had, presents under the tree uh, during Christmas, you know, birthday presents and, and the like. Um, and yeah, they did our best, you know, their best to make sure that uh, my upbringing was somewhat enjoyable. Well, I was lucky enough to get a preview copy of your book, Playful Rebellion, coming out soon. And you spoke about being a little bit of a clown in the family and yes. uh, like, especially loving April Fool's Day. Why did you like April Fool's Day so much? I, it was just one of the things like my personality was that of telling jokes, that of uh, goofing around. And when I learned about April Fool's Day and that it was the, you know, well, if you were to ask my sisters, I was always, you know, doing pranks, but to have a day dedicated to foolery and mischief, um, I, I jumped at the chance and it was just so much fun to pull pranks on my sisters um, to this day. They, 
they still are like, what is, what is my big brother going to do? What is my big brother going to do to me? Um, <laughs> you know, the pranks aren't as elaborate as growing up. I pulled all the stops, you know, everything from setting buckets up, you know, when they open their door first thing in the morning and things will fall on their head to, you know, switching out the, you know, salt and pepper shakers and, and all that stuff. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, for me, it was play. Uh, I, I think I really liked uh, getting a razz out of them. Um, you know, uh, the creativity and how am I going to fool them this year? Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great. And do you remember play experiences? Um, I do an exercise and you have one similar play history. Uh, I call it play before the age of 12, before the hormones kick in. So did you have a playful childhood with other kids in the neighborhood or new friends? I did, especially once I had a, um, like a, you know, we were at a place. So fourth grade and on. Um, well, actually, now that I think about it, even before that, um, you know, it was still very playful. I was thinking about, you know, things that I did outside of the home and loved, you know, playing with the kids in the neighborhood. We would go and have adventures. This was the type where my parents were like, hey, just go out and do something. You know, as long as you're back home before dark uh, right. and you stay right. out of trouble. Uh, yeah, so we would go build forts. Uh, we would, you know, do all kinds of make-believe type stuff. Um, you know, I had all kinds of action figures and we would go and play with them. And then, you know, like I said, in fourth grade, that's where I started having, you know, the same friends over and over again. And they lived in the neighborhood. We went to the same school. So, uh, you know, found myself again doing organized sports. Uh, very playful growing up. That is fantastic. And did you ever do little plays? Uh, as a kid, I used to do plays in the background with some of my friends and we would just make stuff up. Uh, did you ever do anything like that? Like di different roles? I mean, it could have been with lightsabers or something else. Yeah. And <laughs> me and my cousins, we would make music videos. We would play our favorite songs <laughs> in the background. And then again, there was no one recording them, but we would like you know, for my aunts and uncles and parents, and we would just sort of, you know, do our thing. Well, that that makes me wonder if, if you actually have done musical improv, if that's one of the things that you love as well. I have. I've done a little bit. Uh, it's not necessarily my favorite, um, but again, I, I think the lowest common denominator is the performance aspect. In front of people, goofing off, having a good time watching them smile. Absolutely. Now, did you get involved in theater at all in the, in high school? I didn't. Um, I played music. I played clarinet since uh, fifth grade and I was in band. Um, I didn't get involved in performing arts until I was way out of college. And it was one of those things that someone recommended. I, I love that a mentor saw, saw that in me and said, hey, I think you should take an improv class. You might like it. So you probably had all that kind of hesitation and fear I had before going into my first improv class. I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I think you, you spoke of that in the book. And what, what was your first improv class like? Yeah. So again, my outcome of going there was to become a better speaker, uh, public speaker, you know, to help me in my career. And only thing I knew of improv was whose line is it is anyway. I didn't know anything about theatrical improv. I didn't know anything about long form improv. And so I went into this theater 
expecting all of these performers and comedians to be there. And to my surprise, there were 13, 14 other people just like me, you know, regular, regular people that just want to try it out. And also to my surprise, it wasn't the, hey, stand up there and do something funny, uh, you know, on the spot. Yes, we got to that, but it was more of the ensemble. We learned about, you know, hey, you know, the yes and concept, um, you know, deep listening, all of those things. And the games that we played reminded me of silly games, you know, playing growing up. Absolutely. Where, where did you first study? Uh, yeah, in San Diego. And so maybe that's why there weren't so many people that were aspiring to be comedians and, and sketch writers and stuff like that. Um, however, I fell in love with it. I, uh, you know, I wanted to do as much improv as pros- possible. And because San Diego is not like Chicago or um, L.A. or New York, at the time, there was only one improv theater in operation. Now there are, you know, half a dozen. Uh, but it forced me to drive up to L.A. to take workshops. It forced me to, you know, go anywhere that I could. And that's how I met Jay. And so very grateful that, you know, that was the case. Great. And where else did you study in, in L.A.? We, yeah. Um, the second, was that Second City with Jay or? Correct. Uh, yeah. Yep. And then I take some classes at IO West. Um, I went to Camp Improv Utopia with Nick Armstrong, where Ooh, yeah. I got a chance to meet all kinds of amazing wow. instructors. That's incredible. That is just beautiful. And then so you were stu- how long were you studying before you started teaching? Uh, before I started teaching and getting paid for it, uh, probably about yeah. uh, three, four years. Um, however, I immediately, because I fell in love with the craft of improv, I started bringing the games that I would play in class to the people I work with, to my team, to my colleagues. And I said, oh, we need to play this game. It's so much fun, uh, especially because they were all scared to take an improv class. I'm like, no, it's not what you think. Certainly wasn't. Certainly wasn't. And did they, they they got the yes and and they played? Exactly. And then I became known as the improv guy. And then I would, again, at this time, this was just a hobby. This was just something that I was doing for fun. But I would go to industry conferences and I would be known as the improv guy. And then someone would say, hey, can you lead a breakout uh, session teaching us some of this improv stuff? I'm like, oh, yeah, why not? Yeah, everyone, you know, needs to learn improv uh, because I immediately saw the connections between um, what we were doing on stage and how we were uh, building camaraderie and, and how we were, you know, stepping outside of our comfort zone and being better communicators. I saw the correlations between that and, you know, at work. And so um, I was like, yeah, we need to play this game. We need to play this game. Um, and again, it was before I started really studying you know uh the art of play and applied improvisation it was just i was curious i loved it and i said everyone needs it so i'm wondering how you got introduced to the um uh oh yeah we'll take a song break oh yeah we'll take a song break now i don't know <laughs> yeah i forgive me um all of a sudden no, no, devices no. started playing <laughs> all right cool we just go with the uh, flow so there is a big difference between 
teaching improv and then getting paid to teach improv isn't there big jump there, there. big jump so so now i uh had a career way before improv teaching the healing power of play and laughter for many many years way before you were even well almost when you were born but anyway how did you get into the concept of play was it Stuart brown that turned you on or how did that happen i think the big thing was that i kept trying to push improv and people were saying no uh i don't think it's for me and then i essentially unpacked it and i said we're essentially playing so then i was like maybe that's what it is that's like that's why i like it so much it's play so then i started diving into play i i said well improv is like play maybe there's something else i don't know so then i i went to the library i went on amazon and i started buying books on play and the benefits of play and that's how yes i how i discovered dr stuart brown and then i just started reading all these books and what i was learning is that adults aren't playing, you know, suffering from play deprivation. And I was like, yes, that's me. That is exactly me. And then when you can tap into that, you can be the best version of, of yourself. And then I was like, yep, that is exactly it. Um, and so then I, again, as and the interesting thing was, this is where, when I really started learning about um, ADHD and how to really harness it as a superpower, I was like, oh, I have the I school it wasn't that school was bad it's just that it wasn't set up in a way that was conducive to my way of learning because I'm you know as a you know I at this point I'm you know late 20s early 30s I'm learning so much and and I love it and so I was like oh it's just you know I have the ability to learn so nonetheless I was diving into everything about play uh I was you know giving myself my own sort of uh, you know, degree in play education, um, you know, going to uh, workshops and then, you know, and then the interesting thing, no offense to anyone who teaches play, seems like it was very boring. Everything was very academic. It was very dry. And I was, I was saying, how can we make this more playful so that people can really understand it better? And that's where I was bringing the improv in as a way to mix it with the things that I was learning on the play side. It's fantastic. I, uh, my first experience was in 1984, the healing power of humor and play with some wonderful speakers, including Norman Cousins. And I learned some exercises there, but I'd also been a new games trainer and that was an organization a while back. So I started doing it right away. And they love me at conference. This is not about me, but like professional conference, mental health conferences, et cetera. People were hungry to do it. And it's so easy. You don't have to prepare notes or slides or anything. You just get out there and play. So so where did you go next? Did you, I wanted to go back. I wanted to ask you, did you ever work with kids like on the spectrum or with other uh, issues? Um, no, um, not at first. Um, that was not till much later. Uh, so the interesting thing is all of this learning about play, learning about uh, applied improvisation was all to help me be a better leader. Um, at the time, uh, I was still uh, working in marketing and communication. Um, I worked for a various, uh, various number of agencies and then even ran my own agency. And so this was me developing my skills so that I can create cultures where people want to come to work um, and develop them, you know, mentally so that they can, um, you know, be able to communicate, be confident, all of those things. 
And then it wasn't until, and I like to say the universe had different plans for me uh, because this was something that um, as I was learning things, I was applying it at the place where I worked, uh, the agency that I co-founded. And then I would do these fun little retreats with, with um, you know, uh, friends that I've met that were also into it. And so it, it wasn't, you know, if anything, we were like, hey, can we break even? Um, that was our goal because we we felt like this needs to be in front of as many people as possible. We want it to be as accessible as possible. And then uh, my co-founder, uh, when I got back from uh, doing a retreat, um, he had different news for me. He said that maybe we should go our separate ways. Um, he didn't want to be in business with me anymore. Um, right then and there, he had um, a little buyout check. He was like, hey, I I'm going to take the agency and go this way. Thanks. Goodbye. And then um, two hours after that, our landlord said that me and my wife had about 40 days to find a new place to live because he was selling Oh, my God. House. Oh, no. Yep. And, <laughs> and I was at a crossroads. What do I do? And my wife was the one who said, um, you know, hey, how about you really double down on this facilitation thing? Because um, you appear to really love it. And then, um, yeah, I just try to figure out, all right, how can I start to really get paid for this? Absolutely. The money is very important. So what did you do next? You are just a charming, charismatic, beautiful man. People can't see you right now, but I can. And so what, what, what was, you're still living in LA at the time? Yep, we're in San Diego. Um, me and my wife. Diego, sorry. Yep, we moved back. Yes, yeah, so I met my wife in in Los Angeles. Uh, moved to San Diego, back back to hometown. And what? Um, again, my background's in marketing communication. So I just started going to people in my network and and saying, "Hey, um, I'm starting something new. Uh, can I do a demo for you?" And I yeah. did, I did, I did them for free. I, I called it play breaks. Uh, it was about 45 minutes of curriculum, you know, that was mixed with uh, applied improvisation, uh, right. some laughter. Uh, the end of the day was the end of the day. My point was I wanted them to feel good. I wanted them to connect on a deeper level and then learn something. And I said, if this was beneficial for your team and you see an opportunity for us to work together, let me know. Or if you know someone who can benefit from this, would you mind connecting me with them? And then that was the catalyst. I got a bunch of referrals from there. And then, um, you know, then I, again, you know, just started uh, picking up pieces of business. I'm not going to say it was like an overnight thing. No, it, it took a while. But that's where I started um, getting introduced to therapists who were doing this and was saying, I don't do the, the play part, the experiential part. I know the, the, you know, all the other stuff. Can we partner? Can we do something together? And as an oh, improviser, yeah. I'm all about collaboration. So then I started doing uh, different types of workshops and whatnot. Um, and all the while, you know, just experimenting, like what is going, what is going to help people, um, you know, again, connect on a deeper level, um, be more confident, you know, learn these skills through uh, a fun and enjoyable way. 
and connect with that child, the, the childlike person that's still inside of us. Not the childish, but the childlike person. You know, George Carlin was asked how old he was. He said, I'm five, I'm six, I'm seven, I'm 10, I'm 11. All of those ages are still inside of us. We just have to tap into them. And Agreed. what were some of the, do you remember the, do you remember the, some of the titles of the workshops you were doing with therapists at all? Um, well, there was one on uh, empathy. Uh-huh. Practicing empathy. Uh, I did another one uh, that was all about, um, you know, uh, nonviolent communication. The, you name it. Like the, I think one of my superpowers is to be able to take a complex topic, learn about it, and then find a gamified way for people to experience. Yeah, it. yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So we both love play. And we both love the power of play and camaraderie and the yes and. So you started writing a book. How long ago was that? I don't want to interrupt the improv story. We'll go yeah, back to that. Okay. But I'm, I want to know about your book a little more. Yeah. Uh, it took about, about a year to write the book. The interesting thing is I didn't set out to write a book. Um, most people who are authors says, I have this book inside of me and I wanted to sit down and write it. For me... <laughs> A number of people who had to give me a nudge. So how the book was discovered in me was I did a 30-day play challenge for adults because so many adults would say, Gary, play, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. But they would have a hard time actually making it a habit to bring out that inner child. And so I said, all right, let me help you. And it was 30 days of- 30 days? I, yes. I, 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 was it- in the daytime for a month? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was choose your own adventure. Like I would have videos and I would have habits and every day someone would, you know, you would have like a little message for me, practice this. As in, you know, uh, I call it the, the Mary Poppins. Like when something's mundane, hey, how can you make it a little bit more enjoyable so that you can get through it? Um, how can you find a playmate and do something uh, enjoyable together? You know, all these things. Um, and it was across 30 days so that people can make it a habit. Wow. Yeah. And then people said, can this be a book? I said, mm, I guess. And that was the start. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. So before the book, let's go back to your improv journey. So you're starting to get paid and you're still in San Diego. You don't go to Chicago or New York or any of those places. Nope. Okay. Yeah, I but I so, perform at uh so fortunate uh, a really good friend of uh, both Jay and myself um yep her name is Amy uh Lizeski. Uh she started a theater in San Diego. She's also yep. an alum of Second City and she um brings me in on her opening, you know, as far as our opening cast uh to perform. So now I'm performing quite regularly. And then um, she asked if I wanted to be a teacher. So then I go through, you know, teaching um, uh, like more formal improv performance teaching. Again, that's how I got even more um, uh, like involved with Jay. Jay came down, taught us a few things. And so now I found myself teaching, you know, for the theater and performing quite regularly, which uh, filled up my cup. <laughs> uh, you know, I was getting yeah, a lot of joy from that. And then, um, you know, that also helped me as I was trying to figure out what to do 
with this consultancy that I was starting. So you're teaching regularly at a theater and then, and then what happened? Um, and then that gave me the, um, the ability to start experimenting. Um, that's how I learned about apply, the applied improvisation network. Um, and then I started just like what you were talking about. I started going to conferences because I, when I would talk about play and improv, people would say, oh, that's nice. Uh, and they were a little bit hesitant, you know, again, because, you know, adults want to be serious and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, just like when I first started going out, giving people a taste, I said, all right, most people, if they experience it, they love it and then they want more of it. So then I started looking at conferences that people who would potentially hire me, what conferences are they going to? So I started going to HR conferences. Um, I started going to talent and development conferences. And then again, you know, just like when I was in marketing, I would say, hey, can I run a breakout session? And I would, you know, have a, uh, you know, a session like the art of play, using play as a way to be more productive. And for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, we would play these games and, you know, in the debrief, I would ask them how it makes them feel. What are they learning? How can they apply this to their day to day? And then people would naturally say, wow, we need this at my job. I was like, yeah, let's talk. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful path. I just adore it. And, and I can see that you're excel at marketing. I can just feel that about you. But it's not just self-promotion. It's bringing something powerfully good to other people. And that's, and that's being in service to the world, I think. It's giving them the gift. Exactly. Show, don't tell. Exactly. Uh, so you're still kind of, are you ever, sometimes you use improv in the title, but a lot of times you just talk about play. In, in terms of not turning away people that might have ideas about what improv is or isn't. Correct. And actually, sometimes, depending on the audience, I won't even mention play <laughs> because that turns away those busy people that yeah. don't think that they have enough time for play. You know, it, um, and I just get down to the root of what we're trying to do. You know, if we're trying to um, develop a skill, that's what I'll focus on. If we're trying to be more resilient, that's what I'll focus on. My tools happen to be improv and play, but if if that's going to turn you off by knowing that up front, then you know I, I call it the Trojan horse effect. <laughs> so, have you ever done uh, play experiences outdoors using parachutes or big balls or things like that? I, I have. Meant, you know, I meant like <laughs> I said big balls. I don't know where that came. From. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yes yes i have and so that's what i love about like not pigeonholing myself into like the improv box or or just play i like to say i create experiences depending on what you're trying to get and uh it is so awesome to be able to do that um i was working with a client here in san diego uh jewish family services of san diego and they wanted to create um, what they called the day of, it used to be called day of learning. Now it's called the day of play. And it was so much fun. Um, so for that experience, they shut down shop for a whole day. They brought the whole staff and they wanted to connect with each other. They also wanted to learn something, 
um, and, you know, fill up their cup. And I remember this, this one was in uh, 2019. And we created an experience where it's almost like a round robin, where they had um, nine different stations and each station had something different. One was some improv type games. One was minute to win it. We had some laughter yoga. We had some conversation uh, games. We had all kinds of stuff, puzzles, and they were in a team environment. So they had to work together. They had to communicate. And after each one, there was uh, a form of debrief where they would connect the dots back to their day to day and, you know, think about, you know, reflect on, hey, what am I, what am I learning? What am I experiencing? How am I feeling? And how can I recreate that once I get back to work? Exactly. Exactly. Because people go to a workshop, they're on a workshop high for a day or two, and then eh, back to normal. That's why I love that 30 day program. That's awesome. Awesome. And I think playing outdoors is so wonderful. I just love it so much. I'd love to come to one of your workshops. (laughs) Likewise. So, yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, I wanted to do it here in Naples. I thought about getting permission to use a local park and just seeing who shows up. So you have to come to Florida. That's what you have to do, Gary. Gotcha. Yes. (laughs) Bring the family. Go to Disney World and then come see me Um, and come play with us. Right. So I love I love some of the stuff you talk about in the stuff, the material you cover in your book, some of the chapters. I, I think what I really relate to is talking about the barriers to play. Can Let's go into that area a little bit. The bar- What are the barriers to play? Yes. So as I was, you know, trying to figure out why aren't people playing, you know, play is something that is inherently um, enjoyable. We're wired for it. And I would bring these, you know, experiences to workshops and some people would get it and some people don't. And then, um, you know, so this is through my own experience. And then again, during research uh, to find out, you know, why don't people play? Um, the natural thing is stress. You know, when your brain is in a stress state, fight, flight or freeze, you are turning off the play center. The creativity part of your brain is offline because your brain thinks it needs to protect itself. Makes sense. Uh, But it was more than that. Uh, Like, you know, that's like the default. Um, And then that's where I, you know, in the book, I talk about like, what are the different areas? And some of the things are like perfectionism. When you're trying to be perfect, you can't play because again, play is inherently messy. You're going to make mistakes. Um, I would do this activity where I would um, have the participants uh, draw their neighbor and Oh my gosh, you would think that I was forcing people to do some (laughs) ungodly act. You would hear moans and groans. Oh my God, I can't do this. Like, and they only have, uh, the the other thing is they only have 30 seconds to do it. So, um, and then we talk about it, like show your neighbor. And then, then they're like, I'm sorry. You know, there's a lot of apologetic (laughs) and then we talk about it. And then uh, there's a lot of judgment on themselves of like, oh, I'm not a good drawer. You know, what are they going to think about it? Interestingly enough, I have them do it again, but the second time they close their eyes. So their eyes are closed. And the, in, the interesting thing is most people feel like it was longer, even though both times are 30 seconds. And then uh, we go and we show. And then I ask people, which one was easier? Most people say the time when their eyes were closed. I said, why? Well, because you know, my expectations were down. My eyes are closed. Why? It can't possibly be good. And so when their eyes are closed, again, they're turning off that perfectionism. They're allowing themselves to be playful because they got rid of the expectations. 
So perfectionism is a big thing, especially with adults. Um, it's, it's funny because as like, I know all of this stuff, but yet I find myself going into this as well. Um, I have a five-year-old and I have a newborn and my five-year-old loves oh. to play. Yes, uh, it's, it's an exciting time oh, here. Wonderful. Here over here. Um, but I find myself like my son just wants to play and I'm like, oh, I'm not doing it right. Like I find myself going into that perfectionism. I'm like, no, we're just here to connect with each other. Just let that go. But again, when you are trying to be perfect, you're not going to allow yourself to play because you're you're holding your expectations are too high. Uh, you know, some of the other things is rest. You know, um, are you do you have enough rest? Again, another thing that uh, I've experienced lately, uh, our, our newborn uh, will be two weeks tomorrow. Um, and so, uh, you know, oh. yeah, he, he's fresh. Oh, oh beautiful. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so those are some of the big uh, barriers to play that it, you know, and I tell people, you know, where are you like, take a, you know, think about your state, your, you know, your, your current being, um, you know, what, you know, especially if you were like, I want to play, but it's not working. Um, you know, the, you know, so the extreme stressed, uh, we got perfectionism, um, you know, fear is a big one. You know, if you're not in a safe space, again, you're not going to be playful. Um, and, uh, comparison is a big one. Yes. Yeah. If you're trying to compare yourself to someone else, again, you're not going to allow yourself to be playful. I was reading some quotes on expectation. One of them was by Sylvia Plath. Never have expectations and you'll never be disappointed. Agreed. That's beautiful. Oh, and a newborn. I, I think about looking into their eyes and as things just change so quickly day to day. That's so awesome. So um, we, we, we talked a little bit about the barrier play and adults think, you know, they're going to look silly. And I heard a term a long time ago, uh, uh, psychosclerosis, hardening of the attitudes. You know, this is the way I do it. I don't have time for any of this stuff. This is, you know, childlike, childish stuff, not childlike. Um, so the time factor. And uh, so another one uh, that I liked, uh, because I love your book. It's really great. I can't wait till everybody has a copy of it. Yay. You talk about, you talk about regrets of dying. Can you yes. expand on the idea of that a little bit? I used to be a hospice social worker, so I have a little uh, experience in that, but I'd love to hear your point of view. Yeah, and this was one of the big things too, where um, I, when my first uh, son was born, and I think this started putting me and my business partner at the time on different paths, uh, because my dad worked a lot, uh, and he still works a lot. <laughs> Uh, and growing up, he wasn't there that much. And again, no, no regrets. It, it's just, that was the situation. You know, he wanted to provide for, uh, you know, my siblings and, and me and my, and my mom. And so he worked a whole bunch and I, you know, I like, as I grew up, uh, and we had conversations, he said he regretted not being there. Um, and I, and I learned about the regrets of the dying from, um, also a hospice nurse. Her name is Bronnie Ware. No relation to me. Happen to have the same last name. Uh, but that was one of the things, you know, uh, that people regret. Regret, like, you know, working so much and not being there for their family. Um, and when, and I told myself, I said, I would like to be more present, um, you know, when my son was born. So in 2017, when he was there, 
um, you know, I told my business partner, I said, hey, you know, we need to set up something where, you know, we can be at home. You know, I was like, you have kids too. You, you know, you should want to be at home, you know, just as much as I do, um, you know, so that you can be around your kids. And, and I realized I was driving so far um, to go to an office that I didn't necessarily have to be in. Again, this was pre-pandemic, but I was starting to realize that, you know, you know, why do we have to be like for the type of work that we did? Why do we have to be in the office all the time? Um, you know, as long as the work is getting done, we are managing our clients appropriately and all that stuff. Um, and that was one of the flags where I think we sort of seen things differently. Um, but I, you know, don't regret making these decisions. And uh, that was, again, one of the things that I put in the book is that, you know, we prioritize these things that if we were to, you know, if our lives were to um, end today, is that what they're going to talk about? Oh, wow, Gary was great at finishing the things on his to-do list, you know, or are they going to talk about the experiences that we had together? Um, and I had uh, one of my mentees, uh, someone that I coached, um, he lost his life uh, about two years ago. Um, he had cancer uh, that came back from remission. And uh, Jed uh, was someone that really had that play-like uh, spirit. Um, you know, he prioritized doing the things that was going to help him and his family over necessarily making a lot of money. Um, and I really admire that in him. You know, a lot of people were saying, well, why aren't you doing these things? And and it was almost like he knew, you know, that his time was very limited. And and I, again, it was one of those examples of you never know, you know, when your time's going to be up. So why not focus on the things that are going to bring you joy? Absolutely. And you shared uh, uh, statistics, 70% of people going to their jobs don't like their jobs. It's a job. It's not a passion. Agreed. And and get this. And of that seventy percent, some of them probably they it started as a something that they wanted to do. They're probably in their dream jobs, but yet they're miserable. Totally miserable. Yep. Yep. Well, I, I in my past I worked some nine to five jobs and uh, nine to five. Ugh. Anyway, thinking outside that box that we always talk about. So um, the play that helps us to, uh, what is radical acceptance of reality? That's another chapter in your book, radical acceptance of reality. Yeah, and this goes back into just uh, what I learned from improv of the yes and. Uh, I, I think when we have such high expectations and we want things to be a certain way, we can't get into that play like spirit. We can't really, um, you know, just enjoy life. And, you know, uh, when I learned about that concept of yes and, and it's more than just saying yes to your partner and building, it's accepting the offer and building on it. And you may not like the offer. And that's what I mean by radical acceptance. Once you start to accept, hey, this is what's happening. I don't necessarily like this, but you know what? I have a choice. I can, I can, you know, be miserable or I can try to work with it. I take, you know, case in point, um, the pandemic, you know, when it started two years ago in 2020, uh, I was at first, you know, I had to go through all the emotions because all like everything I did was in person. And I was like, great. I'm just getting the hang of this. And, and now look, my, my career here is over. And then I had to say, all right, what is the offer here? You know, how can I accept, you know, I don't like 
the situation, but how can I accept this is the situation and how can I build on it? And, and once I started realizing that, then things started to get better. Another thing is we have to accept that we're not always going to be happy. There are going to be days when we're a mess, but that's okay. You can be a mess. You just can't stay there. So like once you start to accept, you know, life as it is, then, you know, you can, again, get back into that playground of personality or uh, possibilities. The, the happiness factor is so crazy because a lot of people say they, you know, they come to me, they want to be happy. And I always say happiness is underrated. And, uh, you know, there's other things besides happiness. We can't be happy all the time. We have to know the grief. We have to know the sadness to know the joy and experience happiness. So I, I totally believe with that. Um, so now you mentioned the Applied Improv Network. And have you ever been to their conferences or spoken for them? I have. I have my very first conference, uh, I believe it was in 2014 in Montreal. Um, and So uh, cool. Cool. Yeah. 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 And again, I, I have to give thanks where thanks is due. Uh, a mentor of mine, his name is Gary Hirsch. I met him in Portland, Oregon. And he was the one who I was, I was admiring that he was taking improv and doing all kinds of other things with it. And I said, wow, I want to do that. And he said, have you heard of the Applied Improvisation Network? I was like, no, tell me more. And he said, look them up. And again, prior to that, like I didn't realize that there were people that were taking, you know, um, improv skills outside of theater and, and doing amazing things. And then, um, you know, I went to the conference and I met people that was taking this craft and using it and working with the Red Cross to help people be more prepared for disasters, you know, and working in all other types of contexts. And it was, yeah, such a great discovery. You know, the first class I took was amazing, of course. I was, you know, addicted immediately, got all the books and everything, but I recognized the therapeutic value right away. And when we hook into that, that something is in our passion, you know, and you always like to play and you like to fool around and it just fit the personality so well, didn't it? It did. Agreed. We were in you, that flow. What What'd your father think about your improv work? Uh, it took him a minute, a minute to understand what am I doing, uh, but it's interesting. Like in my dad's, uh, like as my dad got older, he's gotten even more wise. Uh, like he just like I I think he's realizing he's like oh, times are changing. And even like we've had these talks like where he talks about, yeah, it's not the same, you know, when um, when I was your age, you know, things are different um, and he gets it. And like and he's open, like he is more open minded than he was and, and which I love. I love he doesn't understand what I do 100 <laughs> percent, but but he supports me nonetheless. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And being a Navy person, he's used to rules and regulations, right? Agreed strict format that is so beautiful so now uh we talked about a lot of things today but one of the things i really loved in your book that people are going to jump out and buy right away is the uh nine personalities i mean you put so much love and energy in this work the nine play personalities can you talk about those a little bit yes uh those that was like a big aha for me um you know we talk about play and how everyone needs to uh, embrace play. And once I learned about that, I learned about it from Dr. Stuart Brown um, in his book on play. Then I started to realize why people weren't playing. 
because they were only seeing play through one lens. Um, you know, they were maybe seeing it as competitiveness or uh, joking, you know, like me, the, the, the joke uh, jokester. And then once I realized that, oh, guess what? There are so many other play personalities then it helped me help other people get into the spirit of play. Uh, quick story, I was working with um, this gal. Uh, she was born and raised in the UK. And she told me, she said, Gary, I, I never played. You know, growing up, um, you know, it was after the war. Um, you know, my parents, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't goof off. We didn't play. And, and so I asked her a question. I said, so was there something that you did that time just flew by? And you were in this state of joy. And she talked about reading. And I said, well, there you have it. That was your play. You, you know, you might have thought play was just like playing on the playground or something like that. And so, um, you know, in these play personalities, um, that one is the storyteller. Uh, when your dominant play personality is a storyteller, you get lost um, in, you know, stories. It could be movies. It could be books. It can be doing improv. You just get caught up in the characters and, and all the things, um, you know, that, you know, that come with that. And so that really helped me help other people tap into that playful spirit. Now there's other types as well. Uh... Yes, yes, there are. There's the director. Um, if you see yourself as the director, um, you are all about leading the charge, setting up, uh, you know, what people are doing. My son right now, he is the director. Every time we're playing, he gives me like a role. He tells me what my inspiration is. Like he is, is like a movie director. Like he loves being in charge. Uh, and um, there's the collector when, you, you know, your play personality is the collector. You like to collect whether it's memorabilia or maybe it stamps in your passport or, you know, what anything that you can collect. Maybe it's um, in the digital age, um, you know, um, I ride a Peloton bike and you can get badges. You know, maybe it's collecting different badges. Um, there's someone, uh, it's kinesthetic. So play for you is movement. Um, you know, I talked about Joker. That is like, you know, mischief and whatnot. Um, you know, the artist creator, you like to work with your hands. You like to create and um, the connector, the connector wasn't part of um, Dr. Stuart Brown's original set, but I worked with an amazing lady. Her name is Gwen Gordon, most playful, one of the most playful people you will ever meet. Super whimsical, amazing. And she said the connector is one of those missing play personalities. And if you see yourself as the connector, play for you is connecting other people. Jay Suko, I, I think deep down inside, he is a connector, one of his play personalities, uh, you know, going to like a barn raising or a networking event. So those are all the play personalities. And the beauty of that is there's probably some that resonate with you deeply, you know, that you did before the hormones came out before you were 12. Right. <laughs> but some of the other cool things is if you find yourself in a rut, maybe look at a list like that and try to do something that's playful that is outside of your dominant ones and be curious about it. Well, I got to tell you, Mr. Gary Ware, you have, I hope I'm pronouncing the last night, last name, I didn't even ask in the beginning. Yep, it's all good. Um, okay, so you've just inspired me today. I want more of you. I want more and more and more. And uh, just your energy and enthusiasm has been, it's just been terrific. I have learned so much from you. And I know others will too. So uh, do you have a few words you'd like to say about play before we close our session today? Yeah, I think the main thing is 
hopefully by listening to this, if you were on the fence on play as something that is necessary, you are more curious about it. And my invite to you is, um, you know, think about, you know, what is something that you do that you can do, you know, for hours on end that brings you joy? And how can you start to bring more of that into your day to day? That's a beautiful suggestion. I just love it. And I know I'm going to be seeing you in the future. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's all good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay. See you soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Bye.